welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Most holy God, you are the source of all good desires, all right judgments, all just works. And we look to you this morning, we look under your word, and we see these characters of who you are as we look at these attributes, and we ask that you would stamp your holy attributes upon our own hearts. Lord, only you can drive away the idols that, that are in our hearts. Only you can drive them from us. And so we ask you to do that this morning. We pray that you would remove any false conceptions of you. We also pray that you would remove anything we've put instead of you as the idol of our hearts. Only you, Lord, can make us new creations. I pray for those who are here that don't yet know you. Maybe they don't know that they don't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to spiritual life this morning as they behold your glory. And only you, Lord, can make us love the things that you command and long for the things that you promise. And so we pray that you would do that work, Lord. Give your servants a peace which the world cannot give. Have our minds fixed on doing your will. Deliver us from the fear of our enemies, that we may live in peace and quietness through the mercy of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray here as we gather that you would please give each one of us a spiritual gift to share with others here. We pray, Lord, that each one of us would bring, as we gather after service, each one of us would bring a manifestation of the Spirit to bless one another. And we pray all these things for your glory and for our joy. And all God's people say, Amen. Last week, we started a series, a doctrine series for the summer, and we're looking at the attributes of God for three weeks, and so for those three weeks, we're, we're looking at attributes, which are things that God says about himself. An attribute is simply something God has revealed about who he is, and if we're going to have a real relationship with the real God, it's very important that we have an accurate conception of who he is. We don't want to worship a God of our imagination. Um, to have a real relationship with anyone, you have to have a clear understanding of who they really are. Um, this Friday is uh, our wedding anniversary, and we've been married for, I think, 22 years. We've known each other for like 29 years, so we've known each other a long time. And um, if at dinner on Friday night I was to say something to Tosh like, you know, I just love your dark brown hair and your deep brown eyes, that wouldn't go well. No, because she's blonde hair, blue-eyed Dutch girl. She's not thinking that's cool. And it's the same with God. God wants to be loved for who he really is, not a God of our imaginations. And so if we're worship and we love a God that's not him, that's not a win. We want to know exactly what he's like. And as we look through these attributes this morning, some of them will rub us the wrong way at first, but they're good for us to see because they are all good. They are all good for us. They are all good that God is that way. Last week, we looked at incommunicable attributes, such as his eternality and that he's omnipresent and unchanging and he has no needs outside himself. And so those are all ones that we don't share with him. You know, none of you guys are omnipresent. None of you are eternal. None of you have no needs outside yourself. This week, we're going to look at his communicable attributes. Now, these are attributes that he shares in some way with us, although in every one of those, he has a holy version of that that's totally different than us. We are able to, in some ways, reflect those attributes, and that's what we're called to do. We were made as image bearers of God to reflect his glory, and these attributes are attributes that we're called to reflect. They're communicable, like there's a communicable disease. So you can catch it from someone else. These are, this is a good infection God gives us as we get closer to him. Um, first one is, is that God is good. God is, what are you guys supposed to say when I say that? God is good. All the time. 
Okay, good. Yeah, I felt like some of you wanted to do it, and, and I didn't give you time. God is good, and in all that he is, he is the final standard of good. He's the final standard of good. All that God is and does is fully worthy of our approval. If we were healthy, we would approve of everything he is and everything he does. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. And even though we live in a world that's corrupted by sin, we can still see God's goodness throughout the creation. We can still see God's goodness in our lives. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is good to all. He is merciful over all that he's made. And then it says, the eyes of all look to you, God, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand and they are satisfied. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is good. God is good to his whole creation. God is good even to his enemies. Uh, Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's even good to his enemies. And Jesus, of course, said that no one's good except for God. No one's ultimately good in their essence except for God. But we're called to imitate him, to reflect him. Um, you guys may be aware that uh, lately there's a kind of a habit going around of gratitude journals. You guys know about this? It's a mental health practice, gratitude journal, where every day you write down something that is good in your life, something that's happening, something you're grateful for. And if you do that, you're going to find, like, there's tons of things that I don't notice every day that I should be grateful for, good things in my life. And guys, basic human gratitude would dictate that we ought to respond to God's goodness with continual thanks and trust right? God is good. And the original temptation in the garden was what? To believe God isn't good, right? To, to doubt his goodness. And that's still the enemy's favorite tactic, is to make you think that somehow God is not good, right? That's one of the things that creeps into our minds. One thing we can know is that when we think God is not good, we are wrong 100% of the time, because God is good. Everything he is and does is worthy of our approval. And one day we will see him fully, and we will enjoy him completely, and we will worship him for the goodness that we see in him. Amen? God is wise. God is wise because God always chooses the best goals and the best route to those goals. Okay? God is wise. Um, Romans 16, 27 says the o- that he's the only wise God. And God's wisdom, guys, is seen in creation. Psalm 104, 24 says, O Lord, manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I mean, just think about the wisdom of God. You know, when you watch these nature documentaries or things like that, you see God's immense wisdom. Let me give you one in particular. You know that when animals, humans, other animals, when we eat sugar and we breathe oxygen in our metabolism, we make carbon dioxide and water. That's what we do. Take in sugar, take in oxygen, metabolize that for energy. The output is water and carbon dioxide. Do you guys realize that plants, in the presence of light, Take water and carbon dioxide, and you know what they make? Sugar and oxygen. This is incredible, okay? Like, this is incredible. That the products of our metabolism are something that plants take in the presence of sun, like little solar panels, and they turn it back into sugar and um, oxygen. It's amazing. Have you guys ever noticed that the sun and the moon are basically the same size from our vantage point? Have you ever noticed that? There's no actual reason that has to be. You guys realize that, right? It's not like there couldn't be life here if the moon wasn't the same size as the sun from our vantage point. Okay, the reason why they look the same, even though the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, it's also 400 times further away. 
so that they perfectly line up so we can have solar eclipses. That is a purely aesthetic flourish. That is purely ornamental. That is not necessary. And God, in his wisdom, had to think about, like, if I was a human and standing down on earth and looked up, would they look the same size? And I was reading stuff on it this week, and they're like, yeah, it's a really odd coincidence. You know, like, it's a really odd coincidence that they would line up like that. God, in his wisdom, has made the world in amazing ways and even put in little, you know, artistic designs that are completely unnecessary, but something for us to enjoy. God is wise in his design of every detail of our lives. Psalm 139.16 says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God forms every single one of our days down to the exact details of everything that happens. And that's why in Psalm 118, it says that we can, that this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Right? God has made this day and I will rejoice and be glad in it because it's made in his wisdom. And guys, God's wisdom is one of the three things that we have to believe to trust him. There's actually three things you have to believe to trust God, especially in suffering. And there are that God is sovereign, so he's actually in control. God is good in all of his intentions toward me and his sovereign plan. He's good to me. He's working for my ultimate good and his glory. And that he's wise, right? Those are really the three things. If you have a driving analogy, it would be, we have to believe that God is actually driving the car of our reality. Like he's driving it, not me. He's driving it. He's sovereign. We have to believe that he's good. As he's driving it, he's thinking for our ultimate joy and his ultimate glory, right? That he's good. And we also have to believe that he's wise. You guys, you guys backseat drivers? You ever like, oh, this isn't the way to go. You know, we shouldn't go this way. That isn't the best route. Well, we do that with God. We doubt his wisdom when we suffer, right? We may not doubt that he has the best possible goal, but we're not really in agreement with the route he's taking to get there. We're not believing in his wisdom when we say things like, man, Lord, I know what you're after, but there's got to be a different way. Or, you know, this, this isn't necessary. This, this is unnecessary suffering. Or, how could this possibly be for my good, right? Those are all very human responses. I have them, you have them. They're fine to have. The Psalms are full of them, right? God, why is this happening? We have to realize, though, that we want to land in a place where we believe in his wisdom, that he has all the right goals and the right route to get to those goals. Um, William Cooper, he lived in the 18th century, and he was a poet and an abolitionist. And he wrote a hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And it would really be worth looking this up. I'm going to read it for you, but it would be worth looking this up online because uh, William Cooper struggled, struggled with severe depression. He tried to kill himself multiple times. He found it very hard to ever even go to church. His pastor, John Newton, would come, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, would come and visit him. And he had a very hard time even leaving his house, okay, because of his mental health struggles. And taking those mental health struggles as being from the hand of God for his ultimate good, he wrote this, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings upon your head. And then he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may be bitter in taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then he says this, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. You know that so often we doubt God's plan, and there's 
Um, I get choked up when I read that because um, this guy's life was brutal, you know? And for him to write that means a ton. You should, there's a John Piper, auto, uh, John Piper biography about him online that you could listen to. It's incredible. But God will one day make his wise plans plain. You guys ever seen embroidery? Embroidery is like a pig. It's a bunch of little colored stitches all put together into this big, you know, hopefully beautiful image, right? That's the goal, right? A beautiful image. Have you guys ever seen the back of embroidery? What does it look like? It looks like chaos, right? It's horrible, ugly knots and stuff like that, right? That's the side we see so often in suffering. We see those knots. We see that tingle. That's what William Cooper saw every minute of his life. But what hap- will happen is when Jesus Christ returns and shows us his plan, we get to see the other side. We get to see what all this was making. And when we see that, guys, we're going to rejoice and worship God because he has the best possible goals and the best possible route to those goals. Um, God is love. God is love in that God eternally gives himself to others. And 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. This is one of our culture's favorite verses, right? Along with... Thou shalt not judge, and God gave every green herb for man. Wait for it. Okay, explain it to your neighbor. But those are the three uh, verses that are favored in our culture. But this verse is amazing. God is love. God is not loving, just. God is love. God is love in his essence. And it's only possible for God to be love in his essence because God is trinity. Okay, you can't have an eternally existing God that is only one person, and have him be love. Can't be love. Why? Because from eternity past, he had no one to love. Our God is Trinity. He's triune. Three persons of the Trinity have loved one another from all eternity. Before creation, you had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit enjoying and loving one another before they created the world. And then they create the world not out of need, but out of an overflow of the love and joy and happiness they have in themselves. They wanted to share their love with other beings, human beings. And then we see at the cross that all three persons of the Trinity display their love in saving us from our misery and giving us everlasting happiness and welcoming us into what they've always enjoyed. Awesome. God is love, right? And God's love, guys, comes from within himself. God's love is not a result of us being lovable. Okay? That's our love. Our love is a response of people being lovable. God's love is, a res- is not a response to us being lovable. God loved us, his people, before the foundation of the world, knowing that we would be very unlovable. The Father chose us in love, even foreseeing our intense sinfulness. You think, well, why did God set his love on me? Why would he set his love on me before the foundation of the world to, to save me in this way? And you know what the answer in Scripture is? God loved you because he loved you. You're like, that's a weird answer. Deuteronomy 7.7 says this. He said this to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of a treasured possession out of all the people of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord had set his love on that he chose you. He says, it's not really your greatness, for you were the fewest of all people. But listen to his reason. This is why he loved him. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is giving the oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and the hand of Pharaoh. You see his answer? Why did, why did you love us? Why did you love Israel? Why, why, did you, why did you choose to set your love on us? He's like, because I loved you. It's a tautology. It's saying the same thing twice. He loves you because he loves you. He set his eternal love on you because he loves you. But guys, isn't that comforting? Isn't it comforting that God loves you because of love from within himself, not because you're maintaining your loveliness? 
Isn't that amazing? God had loved you before the foundation of the world because he loves you. His love comes from within himself, not because we're lovely. It's amazing. It's a totally different kind of love. Um, Closely related to God's love is God is jealous. This is a fun one. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, this is greatly disturbing to some people to think of God being jealous. Famously, that was, you know, you see videos online and stuff. That was one of the things that Oprah said that why she walked away from biblical Christianity is, is the jealousy of God. And I don't know how she had it explained to her, so it might have been explained really poorly. God is not jealous of us, okay? God is jealous for us. Um, some have been disturbed by this, but God is the only being that is always justified in his jealousy because all things and all honors do rightly belong to him. Uh, sinful human jealousy thinks that it has a right to things it doesn't, right? Sinful jealousy is covetousness. Um, in sinful human jealousy, we try to possess things and experiences and people that don't belong to us, right? But guys, everything and everyone really does belong to God, and so his jealousy is always appropriate. And you know what else, guys? His jealousy is super good news to his people. Super good news. If God really is the only source of everlasting joy and all other sources are counterfeits, then it is good for us that God would jealously guard our affections and draw us back to himself. You get that? Like, it is a good thing. He should be jealous and guard our affections because God is the only source of everlasting joy and straying from him is the ultimate human disaster. And so his jealousy is actually a protection to us. He says, no, 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 you come back here. No, 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 you come back here. Human jealousy is a form of covetousness, but God's jealousy is always a form of protection. As a husband to his people, God is jealous and will not allow our affections to be given to another. And this is super comforting, guys, because he will never let us go. And we're prone to wander, aren't we? We're prone to wander from him. And yet God is a jealous God and he will pursue us for our joy. Fourth, God is holy. God is holy. His holiness is seen in two ways. He's majestically far above his whole creation, and he's also separate and pure from all sin. So he's separate from his creation and his majesty, but he's also separate from us because of our sin. Um, You can see both in Isaiah 6.1. Take a look there. Turn to Isaiah 6.1. Very important for you to see this. This is a passage that everyone needs to have burned into the back of their retinas. Isaiah 6.1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him, above God, stood the seraphim, which are angelic creatures. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal which he had taken from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. We see two things there, right? We see him majestic and above all his creation. Even the non-sinful angels can't look upon him. 
You know, they fly around with their faces covered. This seems kind of dangerous, right? This is a dangerous way to drive. They cover their eyes and they shield their eyes from his glory, even though they have no sin. They cover their feet because their feet, you know, would touch the ground, I guess, and are common. Not sinful, covering it. And he is also pure, separate from sin. You see Isaiah's response. He's like, I'm dead, man. I've seen him. I'm going to die, right? God alone is holy like that. God alone is holy in his majesty, and God alone is holy in his sinlessness and his separation from sin. But he does make people and places holy sometimes. And we know that with Isaiah. He takes that coal and burns his lips, right? He's like, I'm going to make you holy as my prophet. He, he called um, Abraham. He calls later Israel to be holy. Later, he, he makes a temple as a holy place. Even the stuff in it, right? You can take the bowls out of there and use them for other things. They were holy to the Lord. And God does this anytime he calls a person to himself. He sets us apart. At conversion, in the beginning, when you first come to trust in him, he sets you apart. He makes you holy, holy standing before, the God, before God. 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says that he even considers our children holy to himself, um, the children of believers. And God calls us saints. You know, and we kind of trip over that because we've heard that just used in a Catholic way. But if you're a Christian, you're a saint. And you're a saint from the very beginning, before you're very saintly. Some of you are saintly and some of you aren't. I won't mark which ones. It's not my role. But even before we're very saintly, God calls us saints. He calls us holy ones. And it's really important for you to see yourself as a saint, to see yourself as a holy one, because when you see yourself as a saint or a holy one, sin doesn't look appropriate, does it? You're like, I'm a saint. I don't do that. You know, I'm a holy one. God set me apart for special purposes. I don't take part in that sin because he's made me holy. How you believe about yourself, guys, makes a huge difference in your fight against sin. If you see yourself as a mere sinner or if you see yourself as a slave that was turned into a saint, you're no longer a slave, has a huge effect. Last Wednesday, um, June 19th, that's uh, Juneteenth, which is a really important holiday. It commemorates June 19th, 1865, which was when they announced the abolition of slavery in the last Confederate-held states, especially down in Texas in that area. So it's called Juneteenth. And it was the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation putting into effect, way late, it seems. And, and it was really important for those former slaves to hear and believe the announcement, you are no longer a slave. Stop living like one. And it's very important for us, too, to believe that we're free, that we were slaves, but now we're saints. And in Christ, we are free to live in holiness. Super important that you get that about your identity. You are a saint. Call each other saints. Call each other saints without joking. I often call some of you guys saints in a joking way, but we ought to believe that for ourselves. Over time, the Lord, the Spirit, makes us more and more holy, setting us apart more and more in our actions, in our thoughts, and even in our desires. God says, be holy for I am holy. Um, God is just. This is the fifth one. God is just. God's justice means that everything he does right, and he's the final standard of what's right. God is just. And as a just judge, God condemns all sin and injustice. Exodus 34, 7, he says that God will by no means clear the guilty. God judges and gives a sentence to every single sin. There's no sin that goes unjudged before God, the just judge. And, and an attribute or a, a response, not really an attribute, but a response of his that's related to this is his wrath. God's wrath. God's wrath is his intense hatred towards all sin. And see, you heard about jealousy and wrath. It's like, we're not afraid to do anything here, huh? Um, Psalm 7, 7 says this, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword 
He will bend and ready his bow. He has prepared for him a deadly weapons. He will make his arrows fiery shafts. God's wrath, though, guys, is a holy wrath, it, which means his wrath is not like human wrath. Human wrath, as you guys have probably experienced, you know, in your home or with friends or with people on the road, <laughs> is ill-tempered, irrational, and unpredictable. There are these eruptions that kind of don't make sense. First, it's like a volcano. They seem to be fine, and then all of a sudden, explode. But guys, God's wrath is predictable. It is only and always in response to actual sin. God's wrath is always appropriate and always predictable. God's wrath is only and always a response to breaking his clear and very reasonable commands. You guys read the Ten Commandments? They're entirely reasonable. God has very, very reasonable good commands, and when we break them, his response is wrath. God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting opposition to every breaking of his perfect law. And in the Bible, guys, God's justice is actually seen as a good thing, especially as you read through the Old Testament, that God won't leave the world filled with suffering and injustice. He will come and set things right. That's his justice. People complain, you know, look at the world, look at all the terrible things that are going on, and you say, well, God's going to come and judge. Well, I don't want him to do that. It's like, well, that's the solution. The solution is that God would come and set things right. He will come back to judge the nations and make things right. We want that. The only problem is, is that what? We're a part of the problem, right? We are a part of the injustice. We are a part of why the world is filled with suffering. Have you guys caused suffering to other people? Have you done it this week? Did you do it on the way here? Like, we're a part of this problem, right? And so God's justice is only seen as bad news because we're a part of the injustice in the world. And guys, for God to be good and loving, he must express wrath against all sin, evil, and injustice. A God with no wrath towards evil would not be good. He would not be loving. He would be unjust. I got some good news for you after that. God is merciful, gracious, and patient. Take a look at Exodus 34. This is a really important passage. I want you guys to kind of camp out there. I'm going to bring it back later. So like, if you have like multiple bookmarks, put one there. It says this, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. So you have three things there. You have that God's merciful, he's gracious, and he's patient. God's mercy is his goodness when we're in distress. God's grace is his goodness when we deserve punishment. And God's patience is his withholding of punishment for a time that we deserve, waiting for us to repent. And um, Exodus 34, 7 says that God is slow to anger, right? And many of you guys that are here who came to Christ later in life, maybe some of you I know came to Christ this year, are very thankful for the fact that God is patient, right? If you look back on your life, there were plenty of times when it had been very reasonable for God to just go, you know what, we're done here, pull the plug, judgment, we're done. Like, you've made it very clear the path you're going down. But God didn't do that, right? He was patient. He was long-suffering. He was slow to anger. And he gave time. And you've come to Christ. And you've, you've come to safety within Christ because God delayed his judgment. God is patient. And God's not obligated, guys, to be merciful and gracious or patient. But he often is. Romans uh, 9, 15, says, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it's all the more amazing that God is like this, merciful and gracious and patient, because he's not under any requirement to be. He'd be completely just to have judged us long ago, but he doesn't do it. He's waiting. You might wonder, okay, how do all these attributes fit together? I mean, even when you look at Exodus 34, 6, it says this, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and then what? But he will no, by no means clear the guilty. And you're like, that's odd. Does that seem odd? So he's, okay, let me read it again. If you didn't think it was odd, you weren't listening. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, faithfulness, steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So you're like, okay, there's forgiveness. And he says, but he doesn't clear the guilty. You're like, hmm, that seems odd. So how do these attributes fit together? How can God be both loving and holy? How can he be both just and gracious? How can he be merciful and display his wrath? You know, how can this happen here? You know, how can that be true of God? You know, and some people will say, well, you know, it's Old Testament, New Testament. In Old Testament, God's like that. Super wrathful, judging, all that stuff. But now, I don't know why, he got real chill. Now he's merciful and gracious, and he kind of lets sin fly and stuff like that. Well, that can't be true, guys, because this passage is where? In the Old Testament, okay? This is in the Old Testament, and both of them are here in the same spot. Other people say it this way. It's like, oh yeah, God is all these things, but ultimately love wins, Okay, that he is, he is, um, he's got wrath and holiness and judgment and, and all that, but ultimately his mercy and his love just kind of, you know, get his justice in a headlock and kind of choke it out. That love wins, mercy wins. That somehow some of his attributes are stronger than some of his others. But guys, God's not like that. Because God, one of the attributes of God is that he's simple. God is simple in that he's unified in all his attributes. God isn't made up of a whole bunch of parts that are warring within him, and he's trying to figure out which one to do. We're like that. We're complicated. Some of us are more complicated than others. On a personality test, I have like the dash with the T, which means I'm turbulent. Okay? So internally, I'm very turbulent. Right? We are complicated, especially because of sin. We wrestle within ourselves what to do. I mean, Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do, and I do the things, you know, all that, right? We're complicated, and we're conflicted. God, though, is unified, simple, and at total peace. God does not wrestle with whether to be loving or just, uh, righteous or good, or to give wrath or mercy. None of his attributes are stronger than any of the others. Whenever he acts, he acts out of all that he is. Isn't that neat? I just think that's really cool. I really think it's cool that he's not like us. And so these attributes, guys, describe how God always is with his whole being. Now, sometimes we recognize certain attributes being exercised over others, but that's not because one's winning out. God is never conflicted. He acts consistent with his whole nature. So we want to ask ourselves, how can God be perfectly holy, set apart from sin, and then welcome sinners in? That doesn't make sense. Separate from sin, but come on in and be my kid, right? How can he do this? How can he do that? How can he have holy wrath against our sin, and yet at the same time show us mercy? How can he be a just judge and judge everything you've ever done wrong, and yet at the same time be your gracious father? This is a problem, right? This is a problem for us. And it's not an academic question because we're all sinners, right? Romans 3, turn to there. Romans 3.23. Keep your finger in the Exodus one, but Romans 3.23 says that there is no distinction. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, when we look at these attributes, these are things that we should all be, as a reflection of who he is. We are called to be image bearers of God that we would reflect him and that people would see our lives and they would give praise to God because they see his character on us. And it says in this passage, though, in Romans 3.23, that there's no distinction. We've all sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. We don't glorify him as we ought to. We've broken his laws. We're guilty, right? We deserve God the judge to rule against us and sentence us to punishment. 
Remember, Exodus 34 says, He by no means clears the guilty. And God is not more merciful and gracious than he is holy and just. God never practices injustice. He never lets one sin slide. And so how can he be a just judge and welcome us in love? And the answer, of course, is the gospel. And you guys are already in in Romans 3, so let me read the rest of it. Guys, God is so wise. He has all those attributes, and I talk about his wisdom. He is so wise that he has a way to do this that we never would have thought of, right? He is so wise. Look, This is his plan. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. That's super good news because we have not done so well on righteousness by law. Have you? Have you done well? Okay, so now something like popped up. Oh, look, righteousness without the law or apart from the law. Oh, this is exciting. And he says, although the law and the prophets talked about it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we receive that righteousness. For there's no distinction, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift. So we get his righteousness as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a a sacrifice that turns away wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sin. He didn't judge people like David and Moses and people like that, right? He forgave them. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Two things to notice here. I know that chapter is really dense. Two things to notice. One is, is that Jesus' righteousness was credited to you. If you're trusting in Jesus, his righteousness was credited to you. He says it's a righteousness apart from the law. Praise God. It's a righteousness of God that we get by faith. It's as if Jesus' life was him living your life over again the way you should have. Okay? When you look at his life, you go, oh, that's what I should have done. Right? That's the life I should have lived. He lives this perfect life. And then when you trust in Jesus, God sees that life as yours, that you did live it. Jesus lived it, but he sees you as if you lived it. He credits that righteousness to you. Also, notice that your sin was credited to Jesus. Look at verse 25. It says that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. To propitiate means to make somebody happy with you. God has wrath for us, rightly so. Jesus is put forward. He dies on the cross. His blood cleanses our sin. God's now happy with us. All wrath taken away. Remember when Jesus was in the garden, he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. It was the cup of God's wrath. We see it all throughout the Old Testament that every day, drip, 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 it's filling. Every time we sin, drip, 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 you know, like a coffee maker dripping, percolating, that there's a cup of God's wrath, his anger being stored up against us, and rightfully so. And he's being patient, right? So he's holding on to that cup. And Jesus is saying, if there's any way we could save these people and me not drink this cup, that would be great. And there is no way to do that. The answer was silence. And so he took the cup of God's wrath. Our sin was credited to him. Jesus' perfect life credited to you. Our sin credited to Jesus. It's called the great exchange. It's a great exchange. It's like two bank accounts, right? You know, here's yours. You've got, you're like $50 billion in debt, right? And then here's Jesus' column. Starts at zero when he's born, but he lives a perfect life and builds up this like $50 billion plus you know, assets. And in the gospel, what happens is, is simply this. You trust in Jesus, the names get swapped. He gets your debt, died on the cross. You get his righteousness, you're received by God. And then God is just and the justifier, meaning he's just in judging you righteous and accepting you. And he hasn't broken any laws. He's made sure every single debt was paid. And yet he's a justifier of you. He stamps you as if you're righteous. He says, I'm going to declare you righteous. You got Jesus' righteousness? Righteous. 
that amazing? It's a great exchange. That's, that's the gospel, and that's totally different, guys, than any religion. This is an amazing, elegant solution. And you guys were impressed by the moon and the sun thing, okay? Like, this is an elegant solution to a problem. This is God's wisdom on display, that God does not in any way sacrifice any of his attributes. Guys, at the cross, we're not seeing one part of his attributes win. We're seeing a symphony of his attributes. Not one attribute has been muted or even turned down. All of his attributes at the cross, at full volume, perfect harmony, beautiful symphony. Full volume holiness. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because Jesus is being separated from God because of our sin. Perfect holiness all the way turned up. Perfect love, full volume. God the Father giving his Son. The Son giving himself. The Holy Spirit giving his power to make it happen. Full volume justice, guys. Not one sin going unpunished. Every particular sin you've committed, if you're in Jesus, was paid for on the cross. God did not just purchase an ability to grant amnesty to people. He literally paid for each one of the sins of his people. Colossians 2.14 says that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, having set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So you've got a rap sheet, and this rap sheet isn't just up until today. It's your entire rap sheet that you will continue to accrue. And that debt was literally paid for on the cross. That should cleanse your conscience in a way nothing else can. That rap sheet was nailed to the cross in Jesus. Jesus was seen as having committed each one of your particular sins. And I don't know if you're grasping what I say, but it's super important for you to realize it's not just an ability to forgive sins. It's a literal payment of each of your individual sins. Nothing will cleanse your conscience like knowing that it is a particular redemption. Full volume mercy, right? Mercy cranked all the way up, rescuing us from our distress and from his own justice. Who are we being saved from on the cross? God saving us from who? From God. He's saving us from his justice, full mercy. Full volume wrath turned up. Jesus freely drinking the cup of God's wrath dry for you. There's no wrath for you. Sometimes you guys fall into sin and stuff. You're like, oh, I think God hates me. I think he's angry at me. I think he's all these things. There is no wrath for you. Jesus drank the cup dry. Full volume grace turned all the way up. We, we get to see God, Jesus. We get what Jesus deserved because he got what we deserve. The cross is a symphony of God's attributes. None of them muted. All of them turned fully up. Beautiful harmony. You guys, and people have said it. I couldn't find who said this, but God's justice and his mercy kissed at the cross. It wasn't like there, it's like, oh, mercy won, justice kind of, you know, we'll just not worry about that. No, they kissed at the cross. All of God's attributes at full volume. God did not sacrifice any attribute to save you, but he did sacrifice himself. Isn't that amazing? He didn't sacrifice one attribute to save you, but he did sacrifice himself. And what a display of God's goodness and wisdom, you know? This is an elegant solution. This is a God who can take something like Good Friday, a crucifixion, and turn it into the most wonderful thing that ever happened. And so I want to say to you, as you're struggling in, with your own dark times, your own, you know, kind of good Fridays in your life, right? That you can trust this God. He was sovereign in that day, right? He's good. He was wise. If he can turn the darkest day in history into that, then you can trust him in your darkness. That's trustworthy. The Lord's uh, Supper is an invitation, guys, for us to, um, to the symphony of the cross, right? To hear at full volume as we take the bread and the cup, to hear at full volume the holiness of God and the love of God. To, to taste his justice and his grace. To remember his wrath and his mercy. As you take this bread, 
It's gluten-free, by the way. I don't have to worry about that. As you take this bread and you take it in your mouth, I think a good exercise, you're crushing that bread in your mouth. Remember that Jesus was willingly crushed for your sins. Isaiah 53 says that, that he was crushed for our iniquities. When you take that cup and you empty it, consider the fact that God's wrath, his cup of wrath, is emptied by Jesus for you. Isn't that great? It's what we remember in the Lord's Supper. And as we take the Lord's Supper, let's, let, let's ask him, as you're taking it, to so feed us by the Spirit that he would give some of these communicable attributes for us as he feeds us at the table. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as you feed us with the presence of Christ now through the, your table, please strengthen us, Lord. Please infuse us with Christ's goodness. We look at him and we think, oh, he's so good. Lord, infuse us with his life, his goodness. Infuse us with his wisdom. We are worse than knuckleheads. We are constantly making a mess of things. Lord, infuse us with your wisdom. Lord, infuse us with Christ's love. Spirit, give us Christ's holiness. And Lord, help us to be people of justice and mercy. Father, help us to be people of grace and patience. Lord, make us discernibly different. We don't want to hear your word and eat from your table and leave unchanged. We pray, Lord, that you yourself would transform us, that you make us discernibly different after being with you. I pray for anyone that's here that doesn't yet truly know you, that you would communicate yourself to them in the heart by the Spirit in a way that is irresistible. Lord, you are irresistible. We are so blind not to have seen it. And we pray, Lord, as we fellowship together, that you would please give each one of us a spiritual gift to share with each other. Lord, we pray that each one of us would have a manifestation of you for the common good. And we pray all this because we really, 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 really want to see you glorified in the world. And because we really, really, really want to taste the joy that only comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.